God takes rebellion seriously and he disciplines his own people. God takes rebellion seriously, but even in the midst of his discipline, there is mercy and grace. The discipline of God upon God's people is temporary, but the wrath of God upon sin is eternal. We're going to see God deal harshly with his own chosen nation of Israel. After repeated and flagrant disobedience against God, God is going to exercise not his full judgment of wrath, No, this is far tamer than his wrath. It is discipline upon his own nation of Israel. We are in Numbers chapter 14. And we're going to start in verse 20. But you already know the verses leading up to this. Because if your small group uses Explore the Bible, and I hope that it does, you will have covered verses 18 and 19 in which Moses prays. These are contextual verses whereupon God answers in today's text. We're going to cover from verse 20 to the end of the chapter. We're going to go into chapter 15. There's a particularly difficult text in chapter 15 that we won't cover today, but we will in February at a special event we're calling Tough Texts, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Here is Moses' prayer that prompts God's response in verse 20. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and to the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people, talking about Israel, according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. That is Moses' prayer. Here is God's answer. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead body shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know that the land, they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness. 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall come to a full end and there they shall die. The difficult text. 
God speaking to God's people. Now my skeptical friend, my skeptical friend who has a particular bone to pick with hypocritical Christians, like you're probably giddy with this text, aren't you? Get them, God. Get your hypocritical believers. They knew, you should, they knew that you said do this and they didn't do it. And now God's disciplining hypocritical believers. You're right. That's exactly what this text is. God disciplining God's people. And my skeptical friend, you may be among those who you really, you don't even have really objections with Christianity itself. It's just the Christians that you don't like about Christianity. Because you know a lot of Christians in your life who claim to know Jesus, but they live a totally different way. And you point to their hypocrisy as a rationalization for your own refusal to step into the will of God. Now, might I caution you, my skeptical friend, because their hypocrisy has no bearing actually on what you believe about God. Their hypocrisy is a red herring. What do you believe? Moreover, consider this. You have called it a bad thing for a Christian to be a hypocrite. You've just used a standard, haven't you? A standard for right and wrong, a standard for morality. You have presupposed that it is bad for somebody to claim one thing and live another way. Where did you get that standard from? Where did you get that measure from? Where did you get that rule from? You're right that it is bad for a Christian to know the word of God and live another way. We all fall short at some point or another. But would you consider my skeptical friend how you inadvertently confess your own sin when you call out hypocrisy in others? If it's a bad thing for other people to be hypocrites, it's a bad thing for you as well. If God takes their sin seriously, he takes yours seriously as well. So be careful, my skeptical friend, in just how giddy you are watching God deal harshly with his own people because you inadvertently confess that it's bad to be a hypocrite. You inadvertently admit you believe God takes sin seriously. This is how God deals with his own people. How do you think he'll deal with you? Be careful, my skeptical friend. Be careful. The whole interpretive lens for this text is verse 20. It's imperative that we remember the opening verse so that we can interpret the verses that follow. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, as he addresses Moses' prayer in the previous text. So God has already pardoned the sin of the Israelites before he issues this decree of discipline. Whew. That makes it even more difficult, doesn't it? But it's important to remember that they're wandering in the Exodus and the mass casualties that will follow from a plague that God's going to pour out were not atoning sacrifices for sin. They didn't wander in the desert to pay recompense for their sins. That would be a wholly insufficient offering. Rather, where were their sins atoned for? Actually, from their perspective, in the future, when Jesus went to the cross. The payment for their sin was given by Jesus on the cross. They are already pardoned. They are already forgiven. This was not a sacrament. This was not an indulgence that was purchased in blood. This was God disciplining his people. 
So the interpretive lens is verse 20. He's already pardoned them. And then verse 21, but truly as I live, as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers. It's also important to remember this wasn't just a one-time rebellion. This was not the first time they defied God. According to this text, God is exercising this judgment in part because there are 10 flagrant testings of God. 10 times these people tested God. There is no generation of people who have seen more epic miracles than the first generation of the Exodus Israelites. Plague for plague, they saw God miraculously demonstrate the impotence of the Egyptian pantheon. The plagues were not arbitrary, they were systematic, and they disproved each of the major Egyptian gods. Yahweh was proving that he is God and the Egyptian gods are not. And then he parted the Red Sea for them in what Paul calls a precursor to baptism. The baptism of Moses, he calls it in 1 Corinthians. And then God miraculously fed them from heaven for crying out loud. They received the law directly from God, written on tablets. It doesn't get any more clear. Don't tell me you need a miracle to believe because the people who saw the most epic miracles in history forsook God. They betrayed God and God called them to take the promised land. They didn't do it. Instead, they reviled God. They made horrendous accusations against God, saying that their children and their wives were better off in slavery in Egypt. They decried God. They were faithless against God. This is the one time that God has asked them to do anything, called them to do anything, and they, in return, reviled God 10 times over. And now God has exercised judgment. Now the judgment, the discipline that he exercises upon them actually comes from the nature of their very complaint. You can see in verse 31 that they, they decry God, saying that uh, God has said that your children, your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in and they shall know the land that you've rejected. This is a direct response to their very complaint levied against God in Numbers 14.1 at the beginning of the chapter. God has taken their complaint and he's turned it into a disciplinary action. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader to go back to Egypt. So God has taken that complaint and he's turned it into a judgment. You said that your children will be better off in slavery, better off in the wilderness, then they will inherit the promised land and you will not. This is a difficult text. It's a difficult text once again, but it's, but it's vitally important that we remember its larger context. You could see a similarity here to Hebrews 6. All of this, according to verse 21, is to preserve the glory of God on the earth because you can't behold God's glory the way the Old Testament Israelites' first generation of Exodus did and then betray God and get away with it. They beheld the glory of God and then they fell away from God. And for this reason, they're disciplined. Hebrews 6 is a New Testament book that reminds me of this teaching. The book of Hebrews is written by, like, do you remember your professor in college who was really scary? And like the first day introducing the syllabus, you're like, this this professor's going to kill me. That's how I view the author of Hebrews. (laughs) He's an expert in Old Testament law. I believe it could have been Apollos who wrote this book. 
In Hebrews 6, 1 through 12, he writes, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God and of instruction about washings and laying on of hands the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. He's calling us higher. Leave behind these elementary teachings. Step into the deeper things of God. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who forsake its cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. He's painting a picture, land that receives rain from God and produces a crop. This is like a Christian who hears the word and bears fruit. Like the sermon that I taught from Thailand, this is the different kinds of soils. Versus the kind of soil that receives the rain, receives God's word, and then bears thorns and thistles. Jesus said in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father. Because you have received the heavenly gift, you've tasted the goodness of the word of God, you've glimpsed the age to come, you're gonna repent from sin, it's gonna bear fruit. So he's dealing harshly with his readers in Hebrews, but he's about to comfort them, he's about to assuage them. All right? In verse eight, uh, or verse nine rather, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of the hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises." Do not come into Highlands Community Church and be enlightened by the news of the gospel, taste the heavenly gift, share in the Holy Spirit that we just abided in worship, taste the goodness of his word that we go through book by book, glimpse the power of the coming age as we join in the angels singing above and worship through music and then fall away from God. You'll have no excuse standing in judgment before him. This is what the Old Testament Israelites beheld, nothing short of the glory of God and the most mighty display yet to date, and then they fell away from God. 10 times they tested God in this way. It's for that reason that they are receiving this strict discipline from God. And it's brutal, man. Verse, verse 29, verse 32, and verse 33, all kind of reiterate the same teaching. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. You never see anybody with that verse tattooed on them. It doesn't make a very pretty cursive meme. You know what I mean? And your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. <laughs> Numbers 14, 29. <laughs> Share. All right, if we could do some basic math with it, like it's probably more people than this. Let's, let's suppose that it's 1.2 million. I mean, he even evokes the very census in verse 29, the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against God. Like this is where the book of Numbers gets its title from. There's a census at the beginning and a census at the end. And everybody in the first census dies except for Joshua and Caleb. So this first census that's taken, it, we estimate it's about 1.2 million. It was likely more. But 1.2 million helps us with the basic math, helps us get a picture of it. So even though it's insufficient for the sake of grasping the scale of it, 
1.2 million people over the course of 40 years dying is 30,000 people dying a year. 82 people a day if the mortality rate were distri distributed evenly day to day. It wasn't though. In fact, we see in the text that there was a plague that took out a large number of people at the onset, particularly the 10 people who gave a bad report about the land, the 10 spies who saw that it was good, but came back and said the opposite of what God told them to say. In verse 36, and the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report about the land died by plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive. This was the consequence for betraying God. You know, the scariest words in the Bible are not actually reserved for non-believers. They are reserved for people who teach falsely. Like 2 Peter is probably the scariest book of the whole Bible. And it's dedicated towards people who have my job but then don't say what God said. These spies saw the goodness of the land, knew what God said, had presented, were presented with the same information as Joshua and Caleb, but said the opposite of what God said. And for that reason, they are recipients of this harsh wrath from God. But did you notice that Joshua and Caleb are not exempt from the Exodus? There, there used to be these buildings, these large structures, and they were, they were full of information, but you, it, it's very primitive. You, you had to go to the building to receive the information, okay? And, and it were, they were the, the building was full of books, but they were like physical books with covers that you had to touch. It's gross. And there was like a primitive, uh, there, was a, there was a navigation, a Dewey Decimal System. And there was like this gatekeeper at the, the beginning of the doorway called the card catalog. And you couldn't just ask the robot in your kitchen for the information. You had to like go to one of these desks that was separated with a wall between you and the person next to you. These desks that keep you from seeing what the person next to you is receiving and studying and learning, and keep you from seeing the person on the other side as well. This wall separates you from everybody around you. It makes it a private experience. Are you approaching church the same way? That as you sit in your seat, the 1110 service, there's a wall to your right and a wall to your left, and you don't want to look and copy on the paper of the person next to you. The person on the other side of you may be working on a totally different research project. You're just here for efficiency. We just gather in large rooms because it's easier to convey information that way, right? And you can choose your flavor of worship music. You've opted for one of the heavy metal services. <laughs> it has nothing to do with anybody else in the family of God. That might as well be a different church the way you're, as far as you're concerned. You are not even here for the people around you. You have walls on either side of you. And this is like a, this might as well be just a one-on-one -on -one devotional. You come for me to teach you more of the word of God, treating me like I'm a life coach. You know, that's not what I am. That's not what we are. That's not what this is. Take down the walls that are on your right and on your left, and you'll see that we are the people of God. We are the body of Christ together. We have unique gifts, gifts of the spirit that make us look very different. You may serve the body of Christ in a way that the hand serves the body. I may serve the body of Christ in a way that the foot serves the body, but our differences complement one another and we need one another, which means that your sin doesn't just affect you. My sin doesn't just affect me. 
our sin affects one another. Joshua and Caleb did everything right. They stood by the Lord. They even tried to convince the rest of the people in the council to believe God. But they still had to wander 40 years in the wilderness, even though they stood by God. Your sin doesn't just affect you. We are the people of God, filled with the Spirit of God, receiving the Word of God. Even if you've done a really good job of covering up the tracks of your sin and nobody knows about it, would you please repent from it because it's affecting the rest of the body of Christ. Holiness matters. A church full of people who seek holiness is unstoppable in bringing revival to the community around it. Joshua and Caleb suffered consequences for the sins of their brothers and sisters. Your sin doesn't just affect you. It affects everybody in your proximity, even if you cover your tracks. You can see that God is dealing with Caleb differently. In verse 24, he says, but, but my servant Caleb, I know the, the, the rendering of the ESV is awkward, but here's what it says, but my servant Caleb, he has a different spirit and has truly followed me. And I'm gonna bring him into the land that he spied out. And he's gonna receive it along with his descendants. Now this verse helps interpret what comes in Joshua. In the book of Joshua, we see that Caleb, when he's an old man, comes in and kicks the giants out of a town and says, this is my home now. Now, why did this little old Hebrew man have such confidence to kick giants out? It's because of this verse. He knew that not only would he inherit this land, but that his grandkids would play in the tire swing in the front yard. Like he knew that his descendants would receive this land. So this verse actually gives us more context as to why Caleb had such confidence taking, own, taking his own part of the promised land and kicking the giants out. In verse 25, I think this is strictly really where, where the exodus begins. You look, look how they change course. They turn for the wilderness. They were heading toward the promised land. Now they're heading toward the wilderness by way to the what? The Red Sea. Isn't that where they began? They're backtracking here. You realize it, it should take only two weeks for a crowd this size to move from Mount Sinai to the promised land. But they wandered for 40 years, and this is where their wandering began. They deliberately were turned off course into the wilderness, back to the Red Sea where the whole thing started. What should have taken two weeks takes 40 years because of sin. And so God is disciplining his people. He is working upon his people's hearts he is disciplining his children, and that may be difficult for you to accept. It may be a hard teaching. In fact, I, I've seen verses like these, teachings like this used as a rationale for disbelief in God. Because I don't like the idea of God disciplining his own people, I'm gonna choose not to believe in God. Do you realize that this text does nothing to disprove God. God is perfectly comfortable with you reading verses 29, 32, 33, and not liking what they have to say. And he is very much just as real as he was before. Your distaste does not detract from his existence. What this text does disprove is the notion that God allows rebellion. That brand of God, yes, he is disproven. But Yahweh, the God of the Bible and all of his holiness is perfectly intact. If this Bible teaching reshapes your view of God, it does so in a way that makes it more accurate. 
God is not okay with rebellion and he disciplines his people. So our young students grow up and they go to churches that don't teach the whole counsel of God and they leave home and they go away to college and there they encounter a brand of atheism they've never heard before. There, their intro to philosophy of religion professor is all too happy to share with them Numbers 14, 29. And your bodies will be scattered in the wilderness. And that college freshman whose church family didn't teach him or her the word of God is utterly at a loss for words and doesn't know how to respond. Now, we've already addressed the fact that that doesn't actually disprove God. Quoting God's word does not disprove God. When you quote God's word to God, God says, amen, I wrote that. He's not intimidated by your distaste for his word. Rather, let this word shake you from your rebellion and cause you to tremble in your sin and to repent before a holy God because this is how God has dealt with his own people for millennia. This was written 1,500 years before Jesus was born. God does not tolerate rebellion. He fully exists whether you like this teaching or not. The only God whose existence is disproven by this text is the God of your own making who tolerates sin, allows rebellion, and is unholy and inconsistent. If you're banking on God being insincere when he says that he punishes sin, you're going to lose. God means what he said. He is not a toothless God. He means what he says. And he deals harshly with his own people for rebellion. Have you ever been through this? I have. Let me be the first person in the room to confess. I have sinned. God has forgiven me for that sin. But then I've been allowed to endure the consequences of my own sin. I have sinned against God. God has forgiven me for that sin. But then he has disciplined me in my sin. Let me be the first to admit that. Your pastor has sinned against God in ways that God has allowed me, though he's forgiven me for that sin, has allowed me to suffer consequences. Am I the only person who's ever experienced the discipline of God? God loves you and disciplines you, just as he has been disciplining his people for millennia. The discipline of God is actually a good thing because he disciplines those whom he loves. That's what Proverbs 3 says. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. My bride and I discipline our children. Why? Because they're our children. We don't discipline other people's kids. Hey, you, strange kid, come here. We don't discipline other people's children. Why? Because they're not our kids. So when you're disciplined by the Lord, what does it mean? You're his child. Don't despise the Lord's discipline for your sin because he disciplines those whom he loves. Christian, endure the consequences that you deserve, knowing in your heart that you will relish in the heaven that you don't deserve. Because the discipline of God is temporary, but the wrath of God for sin is eternal. 
It is better to be a child of God enduring the consequences for your own sin than to be found without Christ as your savior standing in judgment before him and endure forever the right and due wrath you deserve for your sin. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of that sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Now, They've heard the word of the Lord. God has proclaimed that his wrath is coming upon them because of their disobedience. But now, entirely too late, watch what happens in verse 39. They're gonna try to obey him anyway. It does not go well. Here's verse 39. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly and they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country saying, here we are, we will go up to the place the Lord has promised for we have sinned. But Moses said, why are you now transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up for the Lord is not among you lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you and you shall fall by the sword because you have turned back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But they presumed, oh, that's powerful, isn't it? But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the ark or the covenant of the Lord, that was the acacia wood box that was literally physically at the epicenter of Old Testament worship. Neither the ark or the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them all the way to Hormah. They were disobedient from God. God decreed his discipline upon them and they said, oh wait, no, it's okay. We're gonna obey now. You know that delayed obedience is immediate disobedience. They didn't obey when God called them to obey and 10 times they defied God. It wasn't until God decreed his discipline upon them that they suddenly decided to obey. It was too late. When God calls you to go, you go right away. Delayed obedience is immediate disobedience. You're gonna see the next generation of Israelites under the leadership of Joshua learn this same lesson all over again. In Joshua chapter seven, in trying to take the city of Ai, they suddenly suffer consequences. They actually suffer casualties. They never suffered casualties before. In the whole campaign, they've been miraculously protected. And then Joshua goes before God. It's beautiful leadership. He goes before God and they confess sin corporately. And then God reveals that there's a man named Achan who has secret sin. And for that reason, they've lost the anointing. They've lost that protection from God. So, Jesse, this has been a difficult text. This is a hard chapter. Please tell me that now you're gonna like do one of those things where you build this cool bridge like from numbers and it's quoted in Matthew and then it's all good, right? What, what comes in, the next, in chapter 15? Is it chapter 15, verse one, is it God, God says, JK, come on in. No, but bear with me, there is grace coming, okay? You with me? Continue in the text. This is the word of the Lord. It's a difficult text. What would you have me do? Would you rather me skip the difficult passage so as not to ruin your weekend? Or shall we go through what the word of the Lord says? Let's go through the word of the Lord because there's grace. There's always grace at the end. Look at, verse, look at chapter 15. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that you are to inhabit, which I'm giving you, pause right there. Do you see what God did? He immediately reiterates the promise to the next generation. They are gonna receive this land. He is going to give it to them, but it's gonna be to the younger generation. 
and you offer to the Lord from the herd or from the flock a food offering or a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering or at your appointed feast to make a pleasing aroma to the Lord, then he who brings his offering shall offer to the Lord a grain offering of a tenth of an ephah of fine flour. Here's one of the Old Testament precedents for the tithe, giving uh, 10% of your income to the church. Here's an Old Testament precedent for it. Mixed with a quarter of a hen of oil, and you shall offer with the burnt offering or for the sacrifice a quarter of a hen of wine for the drink offering for each lamb. So God has just, in chapter 14, decreed, this is my discipline I'm going to pour out before you. And then chapter 15, and true to the oscillating narrative structure of numbers that moves from historical narrative to the, uh, the the prescription of laws, he has just said, here's how I'm going to discipline you, and here are some gifts you can give me. Who is in fact Lord in this relationship? It is God. Now, as he continues to lay out these laws, some of you, your hearts are still reeling from the proclamation of God's discipline. And you're gonna get to to verse 37 of chapter 15 where he seems to give them fashion advice. And it's gonna be hard for you to grasp until you see how this particular law is fulfilled in the New Testament. Go to verse 37 of chapter 15 with me. Then the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart (laughs) and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all, all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord, your God. This is an important reminder as well. Though this older generation, 20 years of age and up in Israel, would die in the wilderness, they would die free, men and women. They were slaves under brutal, ethnocentric, chattel slavery in Egypt. And now, they die free, men and women. They do not inherit the promised land because 10 times over they have forsaken God but they do die free, men and women. God delivered them from Egypt and he did not send them back. Rather, he brought them to the edge of the promised land, called them into it, they refused to take it. And so then God visits upon them their own devices. He gives them what they want, actually. What they cry out for, they receive. And so God disciplines his own people. This tassel, this fringe, on the corner of a garment, you see it come back in the New Testament. Would you like to see one of the connections from Numbers to the Gospel? <laughs> yes, please, Jesse, I need it. This is a brutal text. Here's Matthew 14. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Genesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent around to all that region and brought to Jesus all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. It was this fringe prescribed in Numbers 15, a reminder of the the Lord's commands that Jesus wore in obedience to Numbers 15, today's text. And when people would touch just that fringe of his garment, they'd be healed. Here's another example in Luke 8. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. You see Luke being charitable to his fellow practitioners the other gospel writers are pretty brutal on the doctors of her day, saying they, they, he couldn't help her. In fact, they made her worse. But Luke is sympathetic. He says, they did all that they could for her. 
She came up behind him and and touched the fringe of his garment, the same fringe as prescribed in Numbers 15. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. It was this fringe of garment that Jesus wore that brought healing to countless people that was prescribed on the heels of our proclamation of God's discipline. So Jesse, does that mean that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament? Does that mean that God doesn't deal that harshly with his people anymore? That God doesn't discipline his people this way? No, I'm gonna build another bridge that connects numbers to the New Testament, but this bridge is built in the opposite direction. This bridge begins in the penultimate book of the Bible and then explains something that happened in today's text. Jude, half-brother of Jesus, biological brother of James, writes, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are called Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. According to Jude 5, It was Jesus who destroyed an unbelieving generation of Israelites. This means that you cannot, now in the New Testament era, believe yourself to have license to rebel against God. Okay, the New Testament shift from the Old Testament was not a schizophrenic episode on God's part. Jesus was there. Jude says that it was Jesus who was present for this outpouring of God's wrath upon his own people. God, excuse me, outpouring of God's discipline upon his own people. So what are you prepared to do, Christian? I have another biblical example of somebody who committed sins before the Lord, was forgiven for those sins, and then had God's, God's coming discipline decreed upon him. It was David in 1 Samuel 12. The prophet Nathan, in a brilliant and clever allegory, brought David to confess his own wrongdoing and then said, your sin is forgiven, but because you have treated the Lord with such contempt, you're gonna receive the harshest discipline imaginable from the Lord. And then David, convicted deeply, prays Psalm 51. That's how you respond when God has decreed that his discipline is coming upon you. Psalm 51, okay? Write that down, Psalm 51. I'm not gonna do your Bible reading for you. You read your own Bible, understand? (laughs) Psalm 51 is how David responded when he received just such a decree of God's discipline. Christian, as you read this text, can you relate 
Is this where you're at right now? Are you suffering the consequences of your own sin? Are you experiencing God's discipline because of your sin right now? Would you pray the way that David prayed in Psalm 51? He didn't pass the blame for his sin. He didn't try to polish his sin and make it seem less sinful. He made zero excuses for his sin. He didn't even ask God to remove the consequences that God had decreed for his sin. He just confessed. He said, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I mean, he confessed his sin going all the way back to prenatal sin, if that's the thing. Like he confessed, surely I was sinned from the moment that my mother conceived me. Against you and you only have I sinned, oh God. His prayer is, God, would you create in me a new heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, oh God. What kind of plant was used to give a drink to the Savior on the cross? It was a hyssop plant. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And then he turns it into a ministry. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. The bones that you have crushed will rejoice. I want you to take Psalm 51. I want you to make it the anthem of your own heart because if you aren't currently under God's discipline or you haven't been under his discipline in the past, Christian, it's likely coming in the future. And because of this text, because you go to a church that unfolds the whole counsel of God, you'll be prepared. You'll know. You'll likely not commit the sin that would, that would incur God's discipline in the first place. And should you anyway, you'll know exactly how to respond. Like David, you will Psalm 51 it. Just confess sin and abide in the mercy and grace of God. As you pray Psalm 51, as you confess your sin before God, you get to the bottom, it's gonna get a little bit weird because David existed in the Old Testament era. And he says, God caused Zion to prosper. What he's talking about is his kingdom. He's the king of Israel and Zion was the name for God's kingdom. You'll cause Zion, your kingdom to prosper. And then he says, and bulls will be offered on your altar. Please do not come here and sacrifice a bull right here. That was very messy last time. This is the New Testament era. Now we worship in spirit and in truth. Now we worship in spirit right here where you are. And so in a New Testament context, what that means is you're gonna to come to Highlands Community Church and even though you're tone deaf, you're gonna squawk out praise to God. It's gonna make everybody within three rows of you step away. You're gonna offer bulls on the altar because that's how we worship in the New Testament. In spirit and in truth, you're saying, I'm gonna worship my guts out, God because you're worthy of praise. Worship the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Confess your sin. Ask God to create a pure heart in you. Ask him to restore your joy because I know you haven't been happy in rebellion, Christian. I know that when you stepped out of the will of God, you stepped out of your joy too. You know it, you know it. You know you've been miserable in sin. So repent and come home, Christian. Confess it out to God. Pray Psalm 51 out to him. Confess it to him, oh God. Create in me a pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Cause the bones that you have crushed to rejoice. I will teach transgressors your ways. 
I will teach other people to avoid the same sin that I fell into. But God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And I will worship my guts out, God, because you're worthy. God, you've forgiven my sin. Now would you create in me a new heart? Would you take this prodigal Christian home once more? Now I want to pray on behalf of my skeptical friend who's been listening in on this family conversation. You've seen that God deals harshly with his own people for their rebellion, and you get a glimpse of how he'll deal with sin for eternity. Because even though these Christians face temporary consequences for their sin, they have eternity in heaven that they don't deserve. And you're not even sure you have that. So if that's you, would you pray to God, God's own words? Would you come into the family of God right here and now? God, I believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son. If I would believe in him, I would not die, but have everlasting life. I confess, God, that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I confess, God, that the wages of my sin is death, just like the Israelites in Numbers. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the way. I believe that Jesus is the truth. I believe that Jesus is the life. And I know there's no way I can come to you, Father, except through Jesus. So right here and now, filled with the Holy Spirit of God. I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it, Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.